Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 22? All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Now, of all the things we could focus on in this large text, I want to focus your attention mainly, though not only, on two words, seeking and desiring. And you'll see those as we get going. The way I'm going to break it up is like this. As I see this text, verses 13 to 16... Deal with the inner life of faith before any behavior is performed. There's no big feat of faith in verses 13 to 16. It's all about what's going on inside. Desiring, seeking. Then, in verses 17 to 19, you get this spectacular act of faith of Abraham with his son Isaac, ready to give him up. And that's as far as we're going to get. If we had time, we would deal with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, all of whom come near the end of their lives, and trusting in future beyond death, give blessings upon their children. But we can't do everything. So let's back up now and start with verses 13. It says, These all died in faith. Who, who are they talking about? Who are the these? These all died. Well, we've just, in the previous verses, last Sunday, talked about Abraham and Sarah. And notice in verse 9, it also mentioned Isaac and Jacob. So at least those four. Maybe you should back up to Enoch and Abel and Noah as well. But at least these four, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, these all died in Faith. Now, how do you do that? What is it like to die, literally, according to faith? There is a death 
that accords with faith, and there's a death that accords with unbelief. One of the things that sets them aside here is, surprisingly, it says, they died not having received the promises. So, the way to die in faith is not to have received the fulfillment of the promises. Now, you've got to get this because we die that way too. I'll show you that in just a minute. It's not that people before the cross died not having received the promises and people after the cross die having received the promises. That's not the case. This book is a model for pre- and post-Christ believers. And we both die without having received the fulfillment of the promises. At 19 you die, 29 you die, 89 you die, 99 you die. And if you die in faith, you know that on the other side of that dying are promises that are going to be fulfilled to you so that you are not jilted in your dying. There's the key. If you want to know what it is to die in faith, it is to die not feeling jilted at 19. If you feel jilted, you are not trusting God. Because, let's read verse 13, make sure we get it. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed or greeted them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles. Now here's the picture that he's giving to us. Here you are living your life by faith and death arrives. Did you know that virtually nobody dies at the same time? There's always some difference. You say, well, a lot of people die at age 80. Um, yeah, but not at the same second. We're all dying at different places on the line of life. So here it comes. God's time. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. And moving up to that moment, it says, we see a lover coming. This is my picture anyway. The promises. The promises are not fulfilled mainly in this life. Remember I said that last Sunday? I said, some of it now, most of it later. So we're moving towards death. And this says, they didn't get the promises. They saw them and greeted them from a distance. So here she is. I remember back in the early 70s, these wives who had had prisoners of war in Vietnam meeting those husbands on the aircraft carrier. Remember those film clips? Powerful. I mean, if there was a dry eye when one of those guys walked across for six years, and here's this little eight-year-old boy. Didn't see him for six years. And here's this wife who's been faithful. And that clinging 
Those are powerful moments. Well, I see this promise out on the horizon and it's coming to me. It's God. It's all that's God's promised to be for me and Jesus. And it's coming. And it's, it's out there. And I greet it. I say, I'm coming. I see you. I want you more than I want this. I'm coming. Therefore, if I get cut down at age 51, say when I go on vacation this week and we have some terrible accident, I get cut down. It's just the closing of the distance. There's no sense of jilt here. It's the quicker arrival of the lover. They have seen this country, this city, this lover, these promises from a distance. And they've said, I see you. I want you. Oh, how I wish you were here now. And God says, be patient. Some now, most later. It isn't isn't change when Jesus comes to the cross. It doesn't change. You might think, wasn't He the fulfillment of all the promises? I mean, when Jesus came, you can't talk this way anymore, can you? That they looked from a distance and... We don't look from a distance, do we? Jesus came. We know Him. He dwells within by the Holy Spirit now. You can't talk this way anymore, can you? And the answer is yes, you must. The decisive thing that happened when Jesus came was not that the consummation of the promises came, but that the complete, finished purchase of the promises came. It says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, In Christ, all the promises of God are yes. When he said, it is finished on the cross, he didn't mean the consummation is now completely finished. And you've got it all. He didn't mean that. No more cancer. No more arthritis. No more lost children. No more agonizing over floods and hurricanes and diabetes. He didn't say that. He didn't mean that. In fact, it says in Romans 8.23, we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption of our bodies. I mean, the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. If you've got a groaning this morning, aching, groaning, dying inside of you, you are normal. It is not promised in this age that they would be taken from us. Rather, we have a Christ who has purchased the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Some now, that's why he heals, some and sometimes. And we should ask for it, but not Mainly now. Mostly later. There's a whole lineage of texts that pick up on this sojourner motif. You see that at the end of verse 13? Not only did they greet these promises from a distance and say, I see you, I love you, come, I want you. And then get cut down before they had them. But it says they're strangers and exiles on the earth. If, if what you love, if what you really live for, if what you long for, if the place where you will feel at home is out there coming on the horizon, 
and you're greeting it from a distance, then what's this? Now, this is a foreign land. And what am I then? I'm a refugee. I'm a sojourner. That's the language. Now, there's a whole, there's a whole lineage of texts like that. To show that it's not just true of Abraham. It's it's true of Peter, James, and John. And it's true of Paul. And it's true of you this morning. Let me just read you the lineage. So you get the impression that being a sojourner is not something that was true before Jesus, but not after Jesus. Looking at the promises arriving from a distance is not something that was true before Jesus, but not after Jesus. It's true of... All the saints until the decisive second coming when he rolls up history, establishes his kingdom, brings the city of God, puts away all tears and all suffering and all sin and all injustice forever. Here's the lineage. Starts with Genesis 23, 4. And it says, now picture this. Here's, here's Abraham and his wife Sarah dies. He loved this woman. And he is a sojourner and has no land. What do you do with your wife? Burner? Cremation has never been a, a main Christian way of disposing of the dead. Don't make a moral issue of it. That's the way your relatives have been handled. I'm not going to condemn you for that. We don't. I don't encourage it. He's not going to do that. He's going to bury this woman, but he has no land. So what does he do? He goes to Heth, a foreigner, and he says, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. It's like missionaries. You go to a little, little graveyard over in Nigeria behind the buildings there, is it in Joss, I think? About 51 little graves where all the missionary children were buried. You don't get on a jet with a little coffin 80 years ago. There's no jets. You bury them. And you go on. Even today. In a foreign land. That's real life. That's the way we are on the earth. Then the next one is in uh, Genesis 47.9 where Jacob at the end of his life is talking to Pharaoh down in Egypt and he says, the years of my sojourning, key word, the years of my sojourning, that is my life, are 130. So my life has just been one long refugee sojourn on the earth. Then David, David, King David. Now David's got it all, right? He's he's a king. He's got he's got goods. He's got family. He's got power. He's at home, isn't he? I mean, if anybody's at home on the earth, it's David. Here's what he said in Psalm 39:12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent to my tears, for I am a stranger with thee, a sojourner like all my fathers. This is every saint in the Old Testament is a sojourner. Every saint is a refugee, an exile. Then the New Testament. Lest you think that, oh, 
Not in the New Testament. Well, you know better. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven. Our homeland is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait. We've greeted from a distance. A Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one more. 1 Peter 2.11 Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. In other words, what, what the New Testament sees happening is that when you become a Christian, your eyes are opened to a distant thing before you were kind of nearsighted. Like if I take off my glasses, I think you're people. You might be trees. You know, but I think you're people. And back there... I don't know what's back there. But when I become a Christian and, and the Lord does this, I see Christ in a whole new way and I want Him. And I fall in love with things that are out there and I say, I want that, I want that. And, and the wants change so much because the seeing has changed so much that my values change so that the Bible says now with these new values shaped by those distant treasures in heaven, abstain from worldly lusts that make war against your soul. That's what's going on there. So the point here in this text is that the life of faith is the life of a sojourner, an exile. We've greeted them from afar. They've made us restless. They've turned us into people who don't feel completely at home anymore in the world. We don't feel at home watching television. We don't feel at home watching the newspaper. We don't feel at home with 99% of the movies that come out. We don't feel at home with most of what Hollywood and Broadway produced, we, 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 our values have been so shaped by a treasure that is pure and holy and good and just and outside this world that we start to feel like, is there any place where I can feel at home anymore here? And we bring those values to bear upon others around us. Now, how does he argue for this. In verse 14, he says that those who speak this way, namely about being sojourners, are seeking another country. There's the word I said we were going to dwell on. Seeking. Seeking another country. A sojourner walks by faith in the promises of God and seeks another country. And greets it from afar. And he argues in verse 15 that if the other country that they were seeking had been, say, Ur of the Chaldees, the country that they came from, they could have gone back. Read that, verse 15. If they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But they didn't return. In fact, you remember the story of... Abraham's getting a daughter for his son Isaac and he, he, he calls his servant and he says, go back there to my father's house and find him a wife. And the servant says, what if she won't come? Should I take Isaac back there? And he says, swear to me 
you will not take him back there. In other words, the lines have been cut. He is finished. He is not going back to Sodom, as it were. He had heard the voice of the Lord. Come to me. I will show you step by step. You will not get much in this life, Abraham. But you will get so much later. And your descendants will get more later. Trust me. Trust me. Then comes the reason why. Why didn't they return to that land? Verse 16. As it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. In other words, at the root of Abraham's allegiance to God, in not returning to his own homeland, even though he had not a place to bury his own wife, was a love for God that said, God, wherever, whenever you please, make me a home. Make me a home. And if it doesn't turn out to be in this life, on the land of Palestine, then I trust you. I just trust you. It's going to be good someday, somehow, there's going to be a home for me. Now, notice the word desire in verse 16. That's the other word I wanted you to focus on. They were seeking, and now it says, they desire a better country. So here's my my inference that I'm drawing out of this text about faith. This chapter is all about faith. Faith is essentially desiring God. The city of God, the country of God, the heaven of God. It's desiring God. Don't make a mistake here. Faith is not fundamentally and first and essentially a pattern of behavior. Get this now. So many people make the mistake of fighting at the wrong level. Well, I'm not supposed to see that or drink that. Or smoke that. Or go there. Or say that. They're supposed to do those things. And they fight at that level. That's not the main level at which we fight the fight of faith. That stuff comes in its own way and in its own time. God does that sort of thing. The fight of faith is the fight for desire. And it's a horrendous fight because you don't turn it on and off like a spigot, do you? I mean, if I told you right now, desire spinach, there's nothing you could do unless you're a very unusual person. And when God says, desire a city, desire a country, desire me, You're shut up to God. All you can do is cry out and say, Incline my heart, O God. I believe, help my unbelief. You asked me to do this. Grant what thou commandest. We need to dwell on this. Because this is, this is an awesome thing. We're right at the heart of what faith is here. That's what I'm after this morning. What's the heart, what's the essence of saving faith? Faith by which you can live and die well. Verse 14, 
They were seeking a different kind of country than the world offered. Verse 16, they were desiring. Those two words, seeking and desiring, seeking and desiring, seeking and desiring something better than what earthly existence could give. So what faith is, essentially is, a seeking and a desiring of God above all other things. It does issue in transformed values and changed behaviors. When you fall in love with the treasure that is out there that you've greeted from afar, and your values begin to be revolutionized by the things you treasure in heaven, you start doing things that are out of sync with this world, like building an ark in the desert, leaving Ur the Chaldees for who knows where, building a crib and gathering diapers at age 90, and other strange things that can only be accounted for because you have another homeland and this land is just not your home. You don't live by the rules. It's a different kind of rule. Like taking a knife and lifting it up over your, your son. Before we look at that one, that's the one I want to close with. Just one more thing. We've we got to see one more thing in this unit of 13 to 16. And it's right here in the middle of verse 16. And I want you to see the word, therefore. There's a glorious therefore here. It says in the middle of verse 16, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, when I read that, I was stunned. I've always looked at that and thought, That's awesome. I mean, I try to think, is there any place else in the Bible where God talks about being unashamed? And I did some word searches and I found all kinds of verses about my being unashamed of God. I don't know another place in the Bible where the shame of God is at issue. God's shame. Where God looks shame in the face and says, I will not have it. I will not be ashamed. God does not do shameful things. Therefore, he never feels shame. Now, do you, I ask you this. This is what I want. I assume the answer to this question is going to be, answer to this question is going to be yes. Do you want so to live and so to believe that God would look at you and say, I am not ashamed. To be your God. You want God to say that over you? I am not ashamed to be your God. Well, I do. Because you know what the alternative is? I'm ashamed of you. And God never feels shame. God does nothing shameful. Which means the alternative of God's not being ashamed of us is that he's not our God. Those are the two possibilities. A lot is at stake here. In Exodus 3, 6, God said, I am the God of your father, Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
Now, why is he not ashamed of them? They're sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. But over some people, among sinners, God says, I'm not ashamed to be your God. What do you, what do you have to do to get that? Some big performance that God can say, I'm proud of that. That's good. You, you really performed well. All right, Piper. Come on in. I'm not ashamed of that. Where's somebody else performing well? Is that our God? Look. Words are in the Bible for reasons. Did you know that? Words are in the Bible for reasons. And two of my favorite words are therefore and because. Because in this text, the word therefore and the word because give me the two reasons why God is not ashamed of me. It's real important that we see this. There's a reason before and there's a reason at the end. He says there in verse 16, God is not ashamed. We can all see that phrase, right? We got our eyes on that phrase. God is not ashamed. Now, just before it is the word therefore. And just after it, God is not ashamed to be called their God comes for he has prepared a city for them. So you got a therefore in the front of it and a for in the back of it. You know what that means? That means that coming after it is a reason for why he isn't ashamed. And coming before it is a reason why he isn't ashamed. And if you want to know how not to let God be ashamed of you, you got to pick up on both of those. That's how you got to read the Bible. you got to see things like this. you got to read, he's not ashamed of a certain person. Now, why is he not ashamed? Let's take the second one and then the first one and put them together. The second one is because he has prepared a city for you. God's been at work, according to John 14 and Matthew 25, he's been at work before the worlds were preparing a place for his people. He is building a city, a beautiful, glorious place of infinite satisfaction. He's been doing that. He's been energized to do that. That's what grace does in its spare time. That's reason number one. Now, reason number two comes at the front of he is not ashamed, introduced by therefore. So we got to back up and get it. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed. So what do you have to do? Want it. That's all. Want it that bad. I, I said a lot's at stake here. This is the definition of faith. Desiring God more than the world. Desiring God more than the world can offer. More than health, more than family, more than job, more than vacations, more than a heritage, posterity. That's faith. And when God sees hearts that imperfect as we are, want Him, desire Him, 
He says, I'm not ashamed to be that God's person, that person's God. I'm not ashamed. Why? Now, here's the question. Why? He made a city of fulfillment, joy, and infinite satisfaction. And if we will have it, if we greet it from afar and say, that's what I want. I want you, God. I want your city. I want everything that you have to offer over what the world has to offer. Why does God look upon a heart like that, even with all of its sin, and say, I'm not ashamed to be that person's God? Is it because desire is an achievement? You all know desire is not an achievement. It's not a performance. It's real or it's not, period. If it's there, it's real. If it's not real, it's not there. Desire is desire. And not only that, nobody boasts in desiring. Nobody boasts for getting hungry. Ah, if you're really hungry, good night, John. When you stop preaching, i got to go home. I'm hungry. Nobody says, and you see how cool I am? How good I am? I'm hungry. Are you hungry? I'm hungry, so I'm better than you are. Nobody talks like that. We know nobody talks like that. There's nothing to boast in about hunger. Especially if you've been without food a long time and somebody puts in front of you the most glorious feast imaginable, namely God. And you suddenly feel hunger by grace for this God. You don't say, oh, cool, I must be somebody, I feel hungry. Nobody talks like, this is not a performance. This is not an achievement. This is not a moral victory over some great uh, thing you were doing, doing wrong. This is before any doing comes on the scene. This is a heart leaning, a heart inclination towards God. Now, why does he say, I'm not ashamed? Well, ask this question. What would be the opposite? If he put it positively instead of negatively. If he said, um, not only am I not ashamed to be called your God, I am blank to be called your God. Stick a word in. Proud. Well, that's scary. What do you mean? You proud of me? That's not what I said. I said, I'm proud to be called your God. I'm proud to be called your God. Why? Why would he be proud to be called your God? Because when you desire God more than you desire anything, you call attention to God's greatness. When you desire something, you're not showing how great you are, you're showing how great that something is, right? That's why God is impressed. He's not impressed with you. You have absolutely nothing to impress God with, nor do I. And the good news is you don't have to. And I'm so glad I do not have to impress God with anything. What I have to do is start feeling desire for what is impressive in the universe. Namely, God. And start falling out of love with all the stuff that I think is so impressive on the earth. Money and TV and sports and clothing and cars and computers and certain kinds of vacations. i got to fall out of love with that so that my heart is caught up and I can say my treasure is now in heaven and then I'm calling all attention to where the value is 
And God is very impressed with God because he's a righteous God. He has to be impressed with what's great. And when we call attention to the greatness of God, God is not ashamed to be our God. Well, let me draw this to a close by simply applying Abraham to you in verses 17 to 19. Just one point for you to leave with that will be, I think, very pointed for us all. In verses 17 to 19, we have the picture of Abraham offering up Isaac. It says in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now the reason this is so amazing is not only because it's his only son, not only because the Ten Commandments are going to say don't kill, but mainly in this text, because God has promised to Abraham, Abraham, someday you're going to have more descendants than the sands on the seashore. And they're going to come through Isaac. I promise you. I promise you. I'm God. I promise you. They're coming through Isaac. Now kill him. Now here's the application to your life. I've been uh, carrying on an email with a couple that's breaking up. And uh, aching inside and trying my best to keep them from breaking up. And uh, I emailed them about this yesterday. Right, stopped right in the middle of my sermon. I said, this is for them. So I sent separate emails to them. I said, I said you know, uh, what you're facing right now in the choice of whether to stay married or not is whether to kill Isaac or not feels that impossible. I mean, I've dealt with dozens of divorcing couples over the years. And I, I know that some, some marriages become impossible to work out together at home. I know that, especially in cases of horrendous violence and abuse. But 90% of the time... It's because one will not trust God, or both. They won't believe him. They say, if I stay, I will be miserable. And God doesn't want me to be miserable for the rest of my life. Therefore, I don't think he wants me to stay. That's, that's the scenario over and over and over again. And I picture Abraham saying, God, now look, I want seed. I want heirs. You told me, you told me that they're all going to come through Isaac. And now you ask me to give up that dream of a happy life. Give it up. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. Now, Abraham did not say that. That's why he's in the book. He took him on the mountain. 
He lifted the knife. And God, to keep his own law and to bless this obedience, provided a substitute. And the lesson is, you can trust him. The issue for some of you this morning is, will you stay married? The issue for others is, will you stay single? The issue for others is, will you leave the job you're in? The issue for others, will you stay in your job for me? The issue for others is, will you get baptized this summer? For others, it's, will you speak up at work? Finally, speak up, speak up about me, will you? Lift the knife up over the reputation. For others, it's, will you confront that person that you know is living in sin and risk your friendship? For another, will you be a missionary? Will you yield to that call? And in every case, more or less, we feel like the step of obedience or the step of yielding to the call of God is going to make us miserable. It's just not going to work. I don't care what you say, Pastor. It isn't going to work. I mean, what else could Abraham say? The promise will not be fulfilled if I kill my son. Everything human says so. And that's the life of faith, folks. Those are the kinds of things we got to do. Will we not only desire God more, but now will we trust a God who, as it were, can raise the dead? Marriage. So let me close like this. I want in a minute for some of you to stand for prayer and to declare with your body a hunger. And here's, I don't want everybody to stand. Here's the kind of people I, I would like to invite to stand to pray for. And then we'll sing and we'll be done. If there's something in your life, maybe a moral crisis, you've got a big choice in, a vocational crisis, a relational crisis, something pretty big. That's why I don't want everybody to stand. Everybody's got something. But something that's been eaten at you, something you really need help with, and you want to say by standing these two things, then I invite you to stand. Number one, God, I really want to desire you more than anything in this issue. I want to desire you. More than anything. Number two, I want to trust you for obedience. I can't see how obedience is going to make my life anything other than difficult and maybe long-term miserable. But I want to trust you that you're good and you do fulfill your promises, some now in this life and wonderfully later on. If you are willing to say those two things. I want to desire you. I want to trust you for this thing that I'm facing. Why don't you stand right now so I can pray for you. Let's just stand.
I'm going to pray for these standing and all of the rest of us will too. And then we're going to sing this great song, He is able. He's able to raise Isaac from the dead. He's able to do what you what you got to trust Him for. So let me pray. Lord, only You know right now what these issues are. That's good. It's good. You know. And I want to ask God that, first of all, a gift of desire would be given. So that the desire that enabled these to stand would just explode with a desire for you and for the city that is to come will be bigger than their desire for anything else. And then secondly, Father, I pray for trust. Confidence that you can turn the path of obedience into the path of joy. That's what's so hard to believe right now for so many, Lord. That the path of obedience would be a path of joy. Lord, grant that kind of Abraham-like confidence, I pray.